0: You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are on Psalm 46 today. Now, Psalm 46 is a great psalm if you haven't encountered it, and it has some fascinating historical uses that we're going to talk about this morning. So if you could open your Bibles to Psalm 46. Let's jump straight in with the heading. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth, a song. Now, I'm always fascinated by anything written by the sons of Korah. I know you did an introduction last week looking at who the sons of Korah were, the last descendants of the rebellious Korah back who rebelled against Moses and his few of his sons were the ones who chose wisely and they were given the privilege of guarding the tabernacle and guarding uh, the gates of the, uh, the house of God. So I just think that with that background I'm always keen to listen to anything that these people have to say and Psalm 46 is no exception. Now the, the word where it says set to alamoth, that's a Hebrew word that comes from alamoth and it means simply a maiden, as in a, a female. This is basically, this was a, one that would be sung by the ladies, by a female choir. The background to this psalm again is hard to pinpoint exactly but most people are agreed that This was written in light of Hezekiah's deliverance from Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. If you remember the story, Hezekiah was sort of locked, surrounded in Jerusalem. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came to the walls and he was taunting the king of Judah, Hezekiah, saying to the people, don't trust in your king, he cannot protect you. Why do you trust in him? And Hezekiah went to received counsel from the prophet Isaiah, he went to the Lord in prayer and then the Lord sent an angel and he destroyed the army of Assyria. And it's with that background that we move straight into this psalm. So Let's read the first three verses together. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, and though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, and though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. I love the first verse there. God is our refuge and our strength. And I don't know about you, (coughs) but with everything that's going on in the world at the moment, it's just a very sort of frustrating time. And things are... It's hard not to watch what's going on without having your flesh aroused in many ways and having all those... Those thoughts come to mind, it, it can be a little depressing in that sense. One of the things I like to do in those situations is just retreat back into maybe the 5th century BC or the 1st century AD and I transport myself historically and that's like my refuge and I go and come into these texts of the Bible and just immerse yourself in them and in many ways it's a good refuge from some of the things that are going on in the world. And It's okay to do that every now and then and that's kind of what I want us to do tonight. I really feel that we kind of need a break sometimes from what's going on. and Let's just immerse ourselves in this theme tonight. The theme of refuge is all through the Psalms. We've seen it particularly in book one of the Psalms and it carries on into book two now. And indeed this theme has been a safe harbor for saints over the years. God is our refuge, our strong tower. And it's, for me, it's always fascinating. One of the things I love is seeing how these scriptures have played out, encouraged the saints over the years. And we're going to see that today with this psalm particularly. For those of you that are familiar with the great uh, reformer Martin Luther, he wrote that famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And it's Psalm 46 where he got his inspiration for that hymn. It was in the, the, the days of the 16th century in Germany, the sort of tumultuous period of the Reformation. It was not a good time, the start of the Protestant Reformation. And many times when he was discouraged, he would turn to his co-worker, Philip Melanchthon, another reformer. And it's recorded he would always say, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm. And they would sing this psalm together. And it's from this psalm, obviously, that he drew the inspiration for that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. If you haven't heard that hymn, go, go on Spotify and listen to it. It's one of the most popular hymns around. It's actually nicknamed the Song of the Reformation. Let me read you one scholar's words about this hymn. He says, It was sung at Augsburg during the Diet, it's a church council, and in all the churches of Saxony, often against the protest of the priest. It was sung in the streets, and so heard comforted the hearts of the saints. It was sung by poor Protestant immigrants on their way into exile, and by martyrs at their death. It was woven into the web of the history of Reformation times and it became the true national hymn of Protestant Germany. Now interestingly, if you dig a little bit deeper into the history of this song, you'll know that Martin Luther wrote this song during an outbreak of plague in Wittenberg. This was the bubonic plague, the black plague. Now not the... When it decimated Europe, that was a a century or so before, but there were sporadic outbursts of plague for the next few centuries, and in 1527, Wittenberg experienced one of these. And it's recorded that as the townsfolk were dying, fleeing in fear from the city, Luther decided he was going to stay and minister to people who were sick and preach as he always did. And also around this time, he was fighting the power of the Catholic Church, Things were falling apart around him. Members of his own family got sick during this outbreak of plague. It was truly a terrible time for Luther. And during this time, he took comfort in Psalm 46. And in the midst of this Psalm, he wrote that, in the midst of this uh, period in his life, he wrote the great hymn whose first few lines says, A mighty fortress is our God, a sword and shield victorious. He breaks the cruel oppressor's rod and wins salvation glorious. It's just a great hymn and if, when, you, when you hear the background of how most hymns are actually produced, you just have such a respect for, for the people who wrote them in some ways. The world was in turmoil at this time in Germany. Infectious disease, infighting between religious institutions, political maneuvering. Now all of this sounds very familiar to our own times, to our own day. And I would say the same lesson applies to us. In times like this, we turn to God He is our refuge, and he is our strength. And when we say refuge, the text here, this is referring to a place of safety, a place of protection, a place of shelter, a place where saints know that they can always flee at any time, regardless of the circumstances. And I think this is a lesson for us, because if you look at the history of Christian missions, one of the unusual facts that you'll find is that the people who have nothing, or who we would consider third world or generally poorer, God is always their first refuge. Christian missions seems to bear that out. But often it's the people in the developed world who have more, who are more tempted to find and flee to a different refuge, whether it be money, security, comfort, all these number of things that we have here. Quite often, God is not actually the first place that we flee to. But we must remember that is where we need to go. We want to stay away from trying to be comfortable in our zone. Sometimes we need to step out and rely fully on the protection and the strength of our Lord. Jesus warns many times about those who would trust in their riches. That's just an example of the sort of thing he's talking about. Our refuge, God, is our place of safety and our protection. And our strength, it says he is. Strength of God is a huge theme in the Bible. Exodus 15, verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. We find that theme all through the Bible, right up until you remember Paul's words in the book of Ephesians, be finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because we have no strength in ourselves, and if we do that, we will set ourselves up for failure. We throw ourselves upon his grace, his mercy, and his strength. He is our refuge. He is our strength. And because of that, if we have that in our minds, first of all, the very first verse of this psalm outlines this. We need not fear in the face of calamities. We need not fear because our refuge and our strength comes from the Lord. It says he is an ever-present help in trouble. Again, that's a lovely verse. If you were to translate that sort of literally, obviously you wouldn't do, but it it would say very findable. That's that's the idea that's being expressed here. He's very findable, as in he is always there. He can always be found in times of need. And that's, again, that's just a lovely thought that really grows out of the concept of refuge and strength. He's very findable. God is ever-present. And then it says in verse 2, Therefore we will not fear. And I like this, even in the faith of such terrifying things. And then the, the text goes on, and it seems to describe an earthquake. You know, when the mountains shake and the sea rises up, it seems to be an earthquake. And as I was studying this, I found a real interesting historical reference to this verse. In 1750, in London, there were two earthquakes. Now, London is not known for its earthquakes generally, but there were two earthquakes in London, one on February the 8th, 1750, and another one a month later in March. And it happened on Sunday morning, and it happened when John Wesley was in the pulpit. And he recorded, he recorded this event in his journal. And the entry for that day says this. It says, This morning, a quarter after five, we had another shock of an earthquake, far more violent than that of February the 8th. I was just repeating my text. And when it shook the foundry so violently that we all expected it to fall upon our heads, and a great cry followed from the women and the children, and I immediately cried out, Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth be moved and the hills be carried into the midst of the sea, for the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. He filled my heart with faith and my mouth with words, shaking their souls as well as their bodies. I love that. Can you imagine the scene? You've got John Wesley in the pulpit. You've got a church full of people and an earthquake strikes and people are screaming and this great Methodist preacher gets up and he just shouts the words of Psalm 46, therefore we will not fear. I'm guessing some people still were fearing in the audience, but you can appreciate the sort of gravity of the situation there. He also goes on to tell how the next time they opened the church, the church was filled to capacity. You see, disasters have this effect on mankind. I remember hearing about after September 11th, how the churches in America were filled for the Sundays after that. And these sorts of things just draw people's attention to God. Now, interestingly enough, This had such a big impact on John Wesley. The theme of earthquakes surfaced in his ministry many times. The Methodists, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles, they actually published two hymn books after this that they called Songs for Earthquakes. I mean, two hymn books called Songs for Earthquakes from two English Methodist preachers. The most unusual place you would ever get a hymn book like that. But this is what they did. And they had one hymn that was based on the psalm that he was preaching, Psalm 46, Psalm 46, And it says this, God, this is just the first verse, God, the omnipresent God, our strength and refuge stands, ready to support our load and bear us in his hands, readiest when we need him most, when to him distressed we cry, all who who on his mercy trust shall find deliverance nigh. I love their hymns. And again, this is just Psalm 46 as it's impacted different saints throughout history. Now, another interesting contrast to this this theme of disaster that we have going on here, earthquakes, our response, fleeing to God for safety, is to contrast it with the response of the atheist Voltaire, who was also in 18th century. He used, there was a famous earthquake in Lisbon, quite a devastating earthquake, 1755, and he used this earthquake as a polemic to argue against God. According to Voltaire, all was not well with the world and he defied the, the biblical revelation to make sense of how devastating this was. And he wrote a poem at this time, and it was really a tour de force against the biblical worldview. I'll just read to you one part of it. This was Voltaire the Atheist. He said, unhappy mortals, dark and mourning earth, affrighted gathering of humankind, eternal lingering of useless pain, come ye philosophers who cry all is well and contemplate this ruin of a world." That was his worldview, as you can see. And you can't blame him, really, if he's literally witnessing the destruction of some of these things, particularly in the world in times gone by. He challenged the idea that there was a sovereign God in control of this universe, and he reasoned that if, and he said this, quote, a God came down to lift our stricken race, he seems to have left it in the same mess that he found it. And I found this striking, really, as I was reading his arguments and reading the, the rest of this poem very similar to arguments that you see Christian apologists engaging with today, because natural evil, moral evil, these things are often used as arguments to argue against the existence of God, particularly a loving God who is involved in creation. The debate does not change, even after hundreds of years. And this tells me something. You see, history is incontrovertibly wrapped up with the question of God. Man cannot escape it. It surfaces almost at every generation of history. The question of God is on the hearts of mankind. Voltaire was right, though. We do not live in the best of all possible worlds right now, in one sense. But he was wrong to think that the Bible does not explain this, or that the Bible does not address this. You see, the part that he understood was he was looking at the world and expecting this to be the exact world that a perfect God would make and everything would be perfect. He doesn't understand the biblical canon that the world was perfect, but it fell into sin. And it was broken, it was full, and it was cursed, and it was corrupt. And now this world is in need of redemption and redeeming, just as everyone who lives in it. And it's also promised that the believer will not escape evil, natural disasters. It rains on the just and the unjust in this world. As believers, we know that. Jesus tells us that particularly. And that was Voltaire's error in his argument here. His moral indignation against evil may have been right. And the sign, really, he had that because he's a person made in the image of God. But he was wrong to reject God's ever-present help in times of trouble. That's what Psalm 46 is about. Now, interestingly, again, back to John Wesley, he wrote a response to Voltaire about the same earthquake, the Lisbon earthquake. But unlike Voltaire, he came at it just from a completely opposite perspective. And he saw the devastating tragedy as an event that should drive men and women to God. It's very common throughout church history to see great saints and they would often have natural disasters would be uh, associated with God pouring out judgment or a reason that men need to turn to God because it witnesses the world. Wesley argued that it proved that we have no defenses sufficient to withstand the forces of evil or the judgment of God. Wesley saw all humanity as inherently fallen and subject to this judgment. He said, quote, The earth threatens to swallow you up. Where is your protection now? Money offers no defense and you cannot fly away. Wisdom and titles offer no protection. And if an earthquake doesn't threaten you, maybe a comet will. You see, Wesley cut through the philosophy of blame that often dominates these discussions. He cut through the psychology of despair and he concluded... And this is his, the end of Wesley's response. Listen to this. He says, Our own wisdom and strength be not sufficient to defend us. Let us not be ashamed to seek Father help. Let us even dare to own that we believe there is a God, an all-knowing, all-powerful God. Let us secure him on our side. Let us make this wise, this powerful, this gracious God our friend. And then need we not fear. And though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, not even if the heavens being on fire are dissolved and the very elements melt with fervent heat, it is enough that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of love is our everlasting refuge. And you can see him using Psalm 46 there again in that essay. It had a massive impact on him. And again, I just love that. I, I love seeing themes of the Bible reverberate through history because the Bible is the most... Imp- the most amazing book and it's had the biggest impact in the world and you can see this in almost any generation of history you can find examples let's continue back in psalm 46 let's read verse 4 it says there is a river whose streams make glad the city of god the holy dwelling places of the most high god is in the midst of her and she will not be moved God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. And the psalmist now pictures a river that supplies Jerusalem. Again, this is interesting. There are no rivers in Jerusalem, if you know that. The best you have is the Gihon Spring, which is the fresh water supply. Remember the story that Hezekiah channeled this underground during the siege. And as we have the pool of Siloam today, but there was no actual rivers in this sense. But God dwells in the city. And you could say this about Jerusalem in the sense that God was dwelling then in the temple. But I believe there's also a twofold reference here, as the Psalms often have. They speak of a future that we see, and the future of Jerusalem does seem to indicate that there will be rivers in Jerusalem. Ezekiel chapters 40, all the way through to the end of the book, in chapter 47, It's a very unusual chapter. A lot of scholars don't know what to make of the sort of last few chapters of Ezekiel because they're filled with very, very specific details about a future Jerusalem temple complex, living areas, and also these rivers. It says in 47 verse 1 of Ezekiel, "'Then he brought me to the back door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house towards the east, for the house faced east, and the water was flowing down from under from the right side of the house to the altar.' And he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around to the outer gate by the way facing east. And behold, water was spurting from the south side. And then in verse 12, it says, And by the river on its banks, on one side and on the other, will grow all kind of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And this is generally agreed to be describing a messianic time period, a time in the future when obviously the king is reigning from this city, and that's why you have this amazing complex here. But the Israelites would have been familiar with the prophetic concept of rivers in Jerusalem. We find it again in Zechariah 14, eight and nine. It says uh, this is the the day that describes the coming of Jesus to destroy the enemies uh, of, who sort of standing against him at this time, and it says on that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the Eastern Sea, the other half towards the Western Sea. It will be like that as summer as well as in winter and the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day and his name will be one, and there'll be one king in that day. Again, this is considered to be a millennial text, but this concept of uh, rivers and Jerusalem seeks its ultimate fulfillment, I believe in the time of the messianic king and we have a sort of a preparation for that that we see in the first advent of Jesus. Because again, remember Jesus' ministry, John, uh, the Gospel of John, he makes that dramatic declaration, doesn't he, that he is actually the one you know, who can give you these rivers of living water in the spiritual sense, even if one day when he is back with them ruling physically, this will probably be fulfilled in both a spiritual and a physical sense in both that way that Jesus combines these two things. It says in verse 6, The nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered. Very familiar language to Psalm 2. Do you remember when we studied Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage? They set themselves up against God. It's the same sort of thing here. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. There's no regard for those who reject him. He controls, this is talking about God, he controls the unseen armies of heaven. And he is a person to whom his people can flee for refuge when enemies attack. He is a stronghold. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Let's read verse 8. Come, come. Behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. See, now he says for the people to behold the Lord's protection. Again, think back to that concept of what happened to Hezekiah. See what he did to the mighty armies of the Assyrian king. He can put an end to nations that challenged his people, and he can put an end to nations that challenge him. And in the future, this is one day what he will do. Let's look at verse 10 for a little bit. Be still and know that I am God. Or my translation says, "Cease striving, and know that I am God." Which is more accurate, but this is a much loved verse in Christian circles. So let's just comment on it for a little bit. Often you'll find this verse overlaid with a picture of a calming mountain, a waterfall, a forest, a bird in the sky, and it's this concept of silence—you know, being out in the outdoors, away from the hustle bustle of life. Find those moments. And in those moments, you can speak and hear from God. That's generally how I see this verse used. Now, I have no problem (laughs) with that. There are many other verses that do sort of indicate that that's something we should do. Jesus tells us often to go off privately, close the door and pray and seek the Lord. However, the more I look at the way big parts of the church and these popular verses are often interpreted or a lot of the, the, just the debates that have gone on throughout church history, I, I'm always more and more convinced that it's not allowing the historical context to lead interpretation, which is where we start going wrong. Instead, instead, we take our own presuppositions from different cultures, different centuries, and we read them back into our own arguments, and we start arguing about things that the authors were never really focusing on. Now, there's a time for some of these arguments, that for sure, but you know the whole concept of what we call grammatical historical exegesis that means interpreting the word is that we have to pay attention to the cultural context and sometimes it can shed a completely different light on the scriptures it's about trying to get our minds back to the authors just what i'm talking about when i say we like to travel back as we're reading the bible in time try and place ourselves within their culture within their context to understand the things that they are encountering and i believe It's just great exercise for you to get into that habit when you're reading the text, but often you'll find that a lot of these debates, a lot of these controversies just sort of disappear if you can do that. Now this is, I believe, be still and know that I'm God. This seems to be actually addressed to the enemies of God. It's not so much addressed to the Christian or to the believer in this sense, it's addressed to those who are raging against him. Remember those ones I just said, like in Psalm 2. You see this is the context, those who were making war upon them. The words are not a message of sort of soothing meditation but they are an utterance of prohibition and that's why the the translation cease striving makes much more sense than be still. We think of be still as just not moving but cease striving describes stop your activity because you're going in the wrong direction. You need to cease doing that. Uh, That's the kind of the idea I believe that we have here desist from making war upon my people and know that I am God, is what he's saying. For those who are raging against him, desist from making war upon my people and know that I am God, I will be exalted in the end. That's what the text is really getting at there. And having said that, that doesn't mean we can't make application in sort of quite a similar manner. I just don't believe the application that we would draw from this would necessarily be be still and go and find God in the quiet times. We can find that elsewhere in the Bible. I think a much more thought-provoking application for us today would would be to ask ourselves, how do we make war against God? Now, we may think we're believers. We don't make war against God. I can guarantee you we do in some respects. Let me read to you the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans 7. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, For I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, the law which is in my body's parts, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And what I'm really getting at here is that we often strive against God, even though we should be following him, as our flesh gets the better at us. What things do we do in our life? What decisions do we make? What thoughts do we have? What things do we say? What actions do we take that actually set us up against God's purposes, that actually find us striving in our own flesh against what God wants to do in our lives? We all do this at certain times, it's it's inevitable. When we get in those periods in our minds where we fall into sin or where we just are not actually seeking the Lord on various things, we can all do this. And I'm talking about in a spiritual sense. I believe God really has the same message to us. He says, be still in the sense of cease striving. Stop walking against the tide or going against the grain. You could say, rather flee to God as your refuge, Rely on God as your strength and you will find that he is an ever-present help in times of trouble. He is very findable in that sense. He will always be there for you in times of trouble because the God of Jacob is our stronghold. And that is the message of Psalm 46. Let's go straight into Psalm 47 because they flow very naturally. Psalm 46 is really about security, about his people taking refuge in him. And now we have a psalm about the stronghold, about who this God of Jacob is, and it's a psalm about God being the king. It's a wonderful psalm. Let's read the first few verses. It says, Clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy, for the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under, his, uh, under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah. This is a kingly psalm. It's focusing on God's expressing, expression of kingship over all the earth. Notice it says, all you peoples. This is addressed to all peoples. This message of God as king is one the whole world needs to hear. In New Testament language, we might say every tribe, every tongue, and every nation needs to understand the message of God as king. And he says, shout and clap basically make a loud noise a joyful noise and i like this a joyful realization comes when you understand that god is king when you know that god is on the throne in the sort of the, the world it can be crazy god is on the throne he is king that's a joyful uh, act when we understand that and in fact i would say that is the foundation of all true worship in many sense acknowledging God's character and who he is and his sovereignty over history. And I would say worship is one of the most freeing things that we can do. I'd say worship is the deepest desire for the human heart. It's really one of the reasons we were actually created. This is why we see humanity is just incurably religious. We always seek something to worship. Sociologists will tell you, even ones who do not believe in God, one of the curious features of human behaviour and psychology So we always find something to worship. Whether it's the created order, whether it's wood, sticks, stones, nature, gods, mythologies, all these different things, mankind just cannot escape the need for worship. This is evidenced throughout all history and all cultures. Atheism is really kind of new in that respect, in its popularity. And even today, as we think it might be popular, if you actually look at the figures worldwide, it's still an absolute minority. Man is incurably religious. but that desire for worship can only be truly satisfied when you acknowledge that Yahweh is king in the acknowledgement of the one true God. Verse 2 For the Lord most high is to be feared a great king over all the earth. Now let me just contextualise this for you. I find this fascinating. A great king. You see we read terms don't we like a great king or king of kings and we often just think that these are adjectives sort of put there to emphasise the noun. Uh, They are descriptive terms that show you that this is a king, this is a great king. And that's true, you can look at them in that sense, but let me just put this in the context of the ancient Near East, because these sorts of terms, the great king and king of kings, particularly, have a background in the ancient Near East. It's very important. An ancient king with that title, the title of great king, that was was a title. It would indicate that they had what they call the power of suzerainty. Uh, Put kind of simply, what that is, that is a relationship when one state controls the policies of another state, a lesser state, and it, whilst at the same time allowing that state to have a measure of autonomy. Okay? One of the the things that a great king could do was make treaties, what they would call vassal treaties. So you had a, a powerful state, they would call the suzerain. Then you'd have a lesser state, that would be the vassal. Now you remember, you read the Old Testament, often these ancient empires you record parts of Israel's history where they became a vassal of Egypt or a vassal of Assyria and they had to give taxes to the, to the superior dominant state. This is the sort of thing that's going on. The suzerain state was the absolute sovereignty, that it was a claim to power. Okay? This, this term has huge amounts of meaning to it. In the ancient Near East, this was a claim of dominance, this was a claim of power, this was a claim that you are top dog if you are the suzerain state, the vassal states, whilst they had kings, they were not great kings because they came under the great king who was always from the suzerain state. That's the background to that term there. It had a lot of meaning. And we see this in the Bible too. Again, I mentioned the king of Assyria earlier, Sennacherib. You remember when he went to Hezekiah, I'll read it to you, Isaiah 36, verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, marched against the cities of Judah. It says, and then in verse 4 it says, And Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, This is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. What is this confidence that you have? That's a very specific statement. He's basically saying, This is what the great king, the dominant king, the suzerain king, the one who's going to swallow you up and you're going to be subservient to him. This is what he says to you. It's a very aggressive statement being made here there's an inscription in the uh, the Armenian city of Van part of the Persian Empire by Xerxes I Xerxes was the successor to Darius the Great you remember Darius the Persian Empire back in the days of Daniel these sorts of things it reads this this was an inscription found by Xerxes it says I am Xerxes the great king the king of kings the king of the provinces with many tongues the king of this great earth far and near son of King Darius Now we read that, and that sounds very familiar, doesn't it, to us New Testament readers, the great king, the king of kings, the king of all the earth. And we think, well, they are descriptions of Jesus, and yes, they are in one sense, but in the context that we're reading them here, they were specific claims to power in the ancient Near Eastern world of all these powerful empires, all these gods of these other empires that they had. This is the language of power and dominance. And I believe that's what the psalmist here is doing. He is making the ultimate assertion that Yahweh is in fact the true sovereign suzerain state in that respect, the the true sovereign who has the power to control all the nations. In contradistinction to any claim from any other powerful person on the earth, God is always going to be above them. That's why it says in verse 3, he subdues peoples under his feet and nations under our feet. That's what a suzerain does. That's what they can do. They have that right. Verse 4, he chooses our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Now this concept of Israel and the inheritance, obviously that was the land and the people in one one sense. I believe this is a reference to Deuteronomy 32, verses 7 to 9. God is showing his power in the fact that he has control over the nations. In Deuteronomy it says this, when the most high gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of mankind, he has set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. That's what he's getting out here. God showed his sovereignty by subduing the nations, to give the Israelites the inheritance, Canaan. This is one of the backgrounds that you have to have in your head when you read the narratives of the conquest of Canaan. Now we read that and obviously the first question that everyone asks is, is how can God allow such violence? That's just our culture, that's the way we look at it in this sort of context. And I'm not saying it's wrong to ask those questions, but many are confused of what is, you've got to understand what is really going on theologically here, what this is showing. It's pointing to a future time. It's showing that God is actually sovereign. He controls the nations and he chooses people's inheritance and he's actually set and ordered the entire world around his inheritance, his people, his earth he is the suzerain, he is the ultimate sovereign, the great king, the king of kings. This is his title. And it points to that future time because remember, when Jesus Christ returns to the earth, what does he do? It's very similar to what Joshua did. He took his inheritance back, but first he had to remove people who were trying to usurp his inheritance. When he comes again for his second coming, he will again exercise that authority as a suzerain sovereign, and he will exalt the nations, he will exalt Israel among the nations, and he will remove those who are usurping his earth, his inheritance, Israel and the entire globe at this time. I find that kind of amazing, really. It's a, it's a parallel. You see, we're reading something here back in the ancient Near East, and we're looking at something in the future or at an undisclosed time. But the interesting thing is when he returns again, people are still going to be fighting over that piece of land. The same battle, the same nations, raging against God. That's what Psalm 2 is getting at. The nations are still raging against against him. There's still rebellion against God. And, And God is a king and he still has to exercise that kingship. This is, you won't understand Revelation unless you understand this concept of suzerain kingship. Revelation 17, verse 14. These will wage war against the Lamb. The nations are raging from Psalm 2. And the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and then what does it say? King of kings. That's why he does this. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. And then Revelation 19. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. These are the ones that are raging against him. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, and his robe. And on his thigh was a name written, king of kings, and lord of lords. He is the great king. Now, notice the use of those that title there. Like I say, it's not just a descriptive adjective describing who the king is. Yes, he is the king of kings. It's making a much bigger statement, and it sort of coincides with what he is doing when he comes with that name on him. He is taking back his inheritance, the earth, from those who are actively opposing him at this time. And once he's done that, we are ushered in to the most glorious time we will ever know. And what a time of praise that will be. And this is where we see the shift here. I do believe there's a lesson for our times here. It goes on, doesn't it? It says after he does that, it says sing praises and sing praises. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. This is when he takes authority over the realm of Israel and also over the whole earth. Follow the theme that we have here. We've talked about him being a king, coming to take his kingdom. What happens when a new king is installed? We see this all over the world, even in a human concept. You usually have a coronation or an ascension ceremony, they often call it. Going up to the throne. You see that, where you see the king walk up and take the throne, usually with pomp and fanfare. In this case, it is the Messiah, who had previously ascended to Jerusalem, and then gone back up to Jerusalem, and now he's coming back to Jerusalem to take his rightful place on the throne of David. You remember when the apostles watched the ascension, and he says, why are, you, why are you wondering? This one who you've seen go up to heaven, he will come back again, the physical coming of Jesus Christ. But he comes back as this king of kings, he has this ascension, God has ascended with a shout. Now remember when we studied the feasts a few weeks back, what did we look at? One of the reasons that the shofar was blown, the trumpet was blown when a new king was installed. Remember we said that, that was what ancient Israel did. This is what will happen one day in the future when we have the coronation ceremony of the king of kings. That's what's going on here. Verse 6, after we have this, it says, sing praises to God, sing praises. This is back in Psalm 47 now, verse 6. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm of wisdom. What other response can we really have when the great king, the king of kings, ascends to his throne, takes his inheritance of the earth and ushers in his kingdom? It will be a joyous event like of that we can only really glimpse, I'd imagine. You see in in the Bible all throughout, whenever we get a glimpse of the heavenly realm or into the throne room or into this sort of world that's hard for us to imagine, we see angels worshiping. We see praise and song being given to God. And when you look at this on the history of Christian missions and Christian history, revivals and great times of spiritual awakening have always been accompanied by singing praises, by song. It's so important. Historians have stated that Martin Luther in the 16th century, listen to this, historians say that he won more converts to Christ through his encouragement of congregational singing than even through his preaching and teaching. That's quite a statement. The Wesley brothers, mentioned them earlier, 18th century. It was said of them, for every person they won with their preaching, 10 were won through their music. And they wrote a lot of music, the Wesleys. D.L. Moody, 19th century. He said this, singing does at least as much as preaching to impress the word of God upon people's minds. Ever since God first called me, the importance of praise expressed in song has grown upon me. Charles Spurgeon. If I might choose my vocation on earth, I think I would choose above all things to write hymns and psalms, such as the Lord's people might sing when they praise him. And my highest wish would be to be one of heaven's poets, to write psalms for the spirits before the throne, and compose celestial sonnets for the blood-bought ones who praise the Lord. What a time of praise it will be when the King is here. And let me ask us now, I I was reading these quotes, I was really convicted by them because we don't think about song like that. We don't think of it as proclamation of the gospel. Now that may be because the lyrics don't do that in some respects, but this is how they thought of it in old. How much importance do we place on communal congregational worship? Historians have looked and said that this was a way that actually more people were won for Christ by these great preachers than some of their sermons. And I can understand that. Music is so powerful. Worshipping God is so powerful. When people see hearts abandoned worshipping the living King, it cannot but make an impact. And I see how people would be drawn to the Lord by that. Now, do we share the attitude of those great preachers? I'll ask us that question, or let me be a little um, provocative here. In today's debate, we could ask, is congregational singing essential? You see, and I'm not trying to be funny here, I want to leave that with you as a question that we must ask and answer ourselves. Because I believe through the history of the Christian church, congregational singing has been absolutely essential, not only to the life of the church, but as we've seen, but also to the proclamation of the word, because it is that which we are supposed to proclaim with our lips when we praise the Lord. You see how that works, and that's the outworking. That is what we'll do with the king. Verse 8, God reigns over the nations... God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. He is a global king. He reigns over the nations. He is not just controlling a large territory in the ancient Near East. He is controlling the entire cosmos. Everything falls under his reign. All the nations. There will be other kings in the kingdom, I believe, kings and princes they're talked about, but he will be the great king. They will be flowing up to Jerusalem to see him, to hear from his wisdom, to hear him proclaim the law, to hear to let him settle their disputes. This is the king. And I was thinking about I was in, in my office early this morning studying for this, and time kind of got away from me because this theme of kingship was so engrossing. I looked at my clock and I was like, Ah, I've, got to, I've got to, had to be like an hour away very quickly, so I've gathered up my stuff. And it's a very dramatic come-down, if I could say that. One moment you're contemplating the throne and the coming of the king, and the next you're sort of thinking about oof, where you have to drive to. and like, It's a little bit depressing, I'll be frank. Anyway, I came downstairs, and I was just getting ready to go, and Toby was in the kitchen, my, my uh, six-year-old, and I was talking with him, and somehow we got on to Christmas, and he was talking about oh, it's going to be such a good day, he lo- we love Christmas in my house. And then he said, this just, just totally random, out of the blue, he said, Dad, you know what will be a better day? And I was like, well, better than Christmas. And he said, the day when Jesus comes to be king on the earth. It was t- I mean, I don't know how he got that in his head, and the, I really, the Lord really spoke to me at that moment to confirm that truth. And it was basically like, you know, it doesn't matter what you're doing, whether you're up in your office, whether you're out going to work, the truth that God is king can make you sing praise and have joy in your heart for God at any moment. Now, I did ask Toby, like that was a really random thing to say, where did you get that? And Apparently, I had told him that at some point in past history. But it, he was so nonchalant, he said it and then he was off, and that was it. But it was a real moment as I was heading out the door, God is king, we need to remember that. What did it say in verse 8? It says he reigns over the nations, he sits on his holy throne. And that is a lesson we need to remember. God is on the throne. No one can remove him from that throne. And it says all people will assemble before the God of Abraham. The shields of the earth belong to God. Some translations say all the mighty ones. And whether this is referring to kings and leaders of the earth or whether this was referring to celestial bodies that do their work in the unseen realm on this earth, we don't know. But whatever the case, they all belong to him. They're all his. Everything is his. This is what it means in Revelation 11, where it says, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And this is why we see the 24 elders. They sit on their thrones, they fell to their face and they worshipped God at that declaration. God reigns over all the earth. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled before him. The shields of the earth belong to him and then it finishes this great psalm by saying he is highly exalted. And what a fitting end for this grand narrative of the king of all kings. It reminds me of Philippians chapter two because we know the one on the throne the Davidic throne is going to be Jesus the Messiah, the messianic king. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then it says, for this reason, God highly exalted him. This is language from Psalm 46. And then it says, bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Who do you bow to? You bow to a king. Of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will be exalted, the highest sovereign, and one day all will bow to him. What a king we worship. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you, Lord, so much. For the words of scripture lord for the vision that we get and i pray that these things would sit in our hearts lord they would encourage us in the dark moments of the soul that we would be able to sing praises to you uh, that living water lord from our innermost being would just burst over in praise to you the great king in jesus name you've been listening to theology and apologetics this podcast is supported by your generous donations to help us continue to bring you great content please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.